Hello and welcome to this Microphilosophy podcast, which is an edited version of a talk I gave earlier this year at a Sea of Faith Network conference in London. It was on the theme of the lust for certainty, a phrase coined by John Hapgood and taken up recently by the agnostic ex-priest Mark Vernon. Well, here's what I make of it. When I looked at the title for this, The Lust for Certainty, I did have a few slightly sceptical thoughts. The first one is, well, who's going to be in favour of that then? Rule one of being an intelligent, reflective, mature person is to accept the fact that in lots of the big questions of life there is no absolute certainty and we have to learn to live with a large degree of uncertainty. This isn't even new either. I think that sometimes this is presented as being the sickness of the age. If you look back through history, I mean, there may be some interesting ways in which uh, people become certain about different things. It may be true that the kind of certainty we have now uh, that is most suffered from is this certainty of dogma. But there was uh, certainly a lot of certainty in the past about other things. If you take things like the Spanish Inquisition and so forth, uh, you know, what exactly were they persecuting? Now, you may well have an interesting story to say about that. You may say what they were really trying to maintain wasn't actually a dogmatic certainty about creeds. It was more to do with conforming to social norms, being a member of the society, whatever it might be. But even if that was the case, there was certainly a hell of a lot of degree of certainty about how we should live, what people should do, the degree of what dissent was possible. So I don't think the lust for certainty is new, and I don't think that anyone who's at all reasonable would want to stand up and defend that kind of certainty. So really, the beginning, I think, for us, the beginning for a, an interesting discussion here is to accept that nothing is certain, but then ask, well, so, and what follows from that? To just state quite clearly what I think does follow from that, I think you go back to some, I think, of the best philosophers in history. The two philosophers I most admire, I think, historically, are Aristotle and Hume, and I think they come from the same mould. And that mould is the type of philosopher who is both committed to thinking as clearly and as rationally and as reasonably and as based on evidence as possible, but who fully, I think, completely understands the limits of that kind of inquiry and doesn't try and push reason too far, which I think has been a historical mistake of people who are more of the rationalist bent in philosophy. They've tried to make philosophy more like mathematics, to try and bring that sort of crystalline logical clarity to subjects that actually don't allow for that. A favourite line of mine from Aristotle's, which I repeat ad nauseam, is that it is the mark of the trained mind never to expect more precision than the subject matter allows. And the important thing is to know, in each subject, what that degree of precision is. There's no point being a little bit vague in mathematics. On the other hand, try and be mathematical about politics. It's not going to work. You know, people do try it sometimes. They try and reduce complex policy decisions to algorithms um, it, it doesn't work it's it's not about being precise or not it's about the correct degree of precision i think the same thing applies for certainty david hume another philosopher i think is of the same kind of mold if, if you've got a skeptical thought about the power of reason or the ability to reach knowledge on the basis of observation of the world Hume had it, and he put it very forcefully, 
Nevertheless, he used reasoners and evidence, I think, as well as you could. He has a few phrases which are very memorable, which are very helpful. What do you do? Well, you proportion your belief to the evidence. And it's the proportion thing that's very important. And a principle that goes along with that is that a weaker evidence can never destroy a stronger. So, you know, that's what kind of follows, I think, from the fact that nothing is certain, that we have to always allow that there are degrees of certainty, that belief has to be proportionate to evidence and reason. Now, the, the reason that's important to remember is if you've only got these two categories, belief that is certain and belief that is not, and agnosticism is supposed to cover all kinds of belief which lack certainty, that's rather limited. If agnosticism is going to play an interesting role in our contemporary debates, then I think its meaning should be taken to be somewhat closer to the way I think the person in the street takes it to be. Not in the sense that it's shoulder-shrugging, don't care, but it's rather a suspension of belief based on the fact there is insufficient evidence to warrant jumping one way or the other. And that kind of agnosticism is only warranted where the issue really is seriously in the balance in some way. You're not agnostic about uh, the safety of your tap water. Your tap water is not certain that it's safe. It might have been contaminated this morning. It may be that, who knows, down the line we might discover that actually in your area there are traces of something which could cause harm. But, you know, you've got lots of reasons to believe that this water is safe. There's no reason to be agnostic about that. You've got a reason not to be absolutely certain that it's safe. But, you know, that's not the same as saying, well, I'm just going to reserve judgment on whether it's safe or not. If you're going to reserve judgment on it, you're not going to drink it. So the contrast, I think, which is important to get hold of is that when you abandon certainty as your general modus operandi for thinking, what you have in its place is not always a kind of agnosticism. It's what, in philosophical jargon, you'd call defeasible belief, meaning that it is open to being shown to be wrong at some time in the future. That's the important thing. So, to put it in the context of God, I do describe myself as an atheist and not an agnostic. Why is that? It's not because I am certain that there is no God can never turn out to be wrong. There's no way I'm going to die and open my eyes and there's going to be a God laughing at me. I think that there's no good reason at all to to believe in God. But my lack of certainty, absolute certainty, just means that I hold that as a defeasible belief. I'm open to being wrong, right? Come up with a good argument, show me some evidence, I'll change my mind. But until that point, I believe that and, and I am convinced of that. I talk about being a convinced atheist, not a dogmatic atheist. Because I do get fed up with people treating atheists as though there wasn't that distinction between the dogmatic kind and the convinced kind. That the, the only choice is between certain belief and a kind of agnosticism. There is a continuum of certainty and uncertainty. And there's hardly anything that's right at the end of absolutely certain but also there's hardly anything which is banging in that kind of point of being just so uncertain that we can't say anything about it. Most things are in between. And to summarise the key areas on that continuum, you have to work within the idea of the, the, the pretty certain, the things we can believe with conviction without being absolutely sure, and those things we suspend judgment on. And the middle category is usually the most important one. 
I think, if anything, if there's a problem around certainty, it's the idea that somehow there's a, a lust for uncertainty. The idea that the most mature, sensible, intelligent thing is not just accept that things aren't absolutely certain, but to positively embrace the idea that they're uncertain, so that we don't make any strong commitment to a belief at all. Where does that come from? Well, I think from some good places. There must be a proper word for this. Um, I don't think it's dogmophobia or dogmatophobia. But I think that we have learned the hard way that dogmatic belief is a bad thing. And I think quite understandably, because of that, we're very wary of adopting any kind of positions or beliefs where we fall into that trap of dogmatism. But I think this fear of being dogmatic can lead people the other way. Any kind of degree of conviction in a view is taken to be a sign of a, of a hidden dogmatism. I don't think that kind of follows at all. And perhaps another thing that's, that's behind this uh, dogmophobia is a kind of uh, democratic fallacy, really, I think. You know, we know that people are entitled to their opinions and that people should arrive at ideas for themselves. That's true. But the, the point about that is, it's one thing to say we shouldn't be forcing beliefs on people and that people have the freedom to work things out for themselves. That's different from saying that we shouldn't come out and say if we think things are very clear, that they are very clear and the arguments for them are quite overwhelming. People should indeed be challenged if their beliefs are not well supported. Sometimes, I don't know whether you find this, but if you get into a discussion with someone about um, something that matters to them and you express any kind of disagreement with some conviction and with reason, you will sometimes be accused of not respecting their opinion or somehow denying them the right to have their opinion. It's like the very idea of challenge, the very idea of strong disagreement is equated with intolerance. It should be more than possible to argue against something, not in a wishy-washy way, and say to believe it's false, that does not equate to lack of respect or lack of toleration. Toleration actually is a, is a question of what you do with people, not what you uh, believe about their beliefs. I may think you are completely batty and wrong in something you believe. I'm only intolerant if perhaps one of two things. One is that I don't allow you to live according to that belief, which, as long as it isn't harming other people, you are entitled to do. Or if I don't give you a fair hearing for that belief, I just shout you down. That's intolerant, but it's not intolerant just to say that is completely wrong and I disagree with it and here's why. Now, how does this apply to religion? Well, as I say, I don't really want to go through all the different arguments as to why I think ultimately it's a reasonable position to be a convinced atheist. Rather, I want to, want to talk about at the moment is what the attractions of religious agnosticism are. One of them, and this is the kind of psychologizing explanation I'm not entirely keen on, uh, you know, the explanations which try and say, well, the reason this happens is because, and then you give people's motives and desires. That's, that's always a problematic kind of form of explanation, because how do you show it's true? Uh, am I claiming to know people's minds and motivations more than they know their own? Well, I think there's an element here in which people are kind of following the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle says that where risks and dangers are very 
high, you should always err on the side of caution. And I think there are people who, who, they're not seriously religious at all, but they really don't like the idea of like shutting the door on religion. They want to keep that door open just in case. I think you most clearly see this when it comes to a baptism, actually. There are lots of people who are not religious and they have a child and something from that religious upbringing makes them think, I really ought to baptise the child. I don't believe it, but what if it's right? I can't condemn my own child to hell. I better do it, right? But I don't have children. If, if I did, I think I might even myself find myself having that slight sense of discomfort at not doing the right thing by my child. Precautionary principle, I think, does lead people to suspend belief where if they were being properly reasonable and rational about it, they wouldn't. Now, of course, this is a tricky one because the whole point about the precautionary principle is that it states... Well, this is the problem. What does it state? I think what people take it to mean is that if there's any kind of danger at all, be careful, avoid it. But I think this does lead people astray. Let's take something like the MMR vaccine fiasco. This was a difficult situation. I fully understand why uh, a public which has not got good science education and was being, having this thing reported to them in a way which made it sound as though the arguments were much more balanced than they were, parents made the decision, well, you know what, it's not clear, but I'm not going to take that risk with my child. The problem is it doesn't work because go on the internet, have a look at all the things that people think are bad for you and they have some prima facie evidence about that some report they're citing, some study that was done, you'd very soon do pretty much nothing. You would certainly wouldn't use your mobile phone. Uh, you probably wouldn't drink tea, coffee, alcohol. Water would be problematic. I got very angry with my local health food store. It put up something in the window. What it said was that chlorinated tap water was so toxic that a pregnant woman standing near a boiling kettle risked harming her unborn child, okay? Now, we're laughing here, but this was put on prominently in the window of a local health food store, which, by the way, was selling its own filtered tap water for 45p a litre. When you think about these things clearly, you realise that you have to discard all sorts of things which seem to have some remote possibility. You can't get out of that. You have to decide how probable is this, how likely is it, and you have to discard those things which are considered too improbable to be worth worrying about. Again, though, all the time being aware of the fact that you might just be wrong. You might be unlucky. Going back to religion, I do think that perhaps people prefer agnosticism to atheism because you know, they want to keep that possibility alive. We can't be sure, so shouldn't we keep that door open? I don't think it works for religion any more than it does for MMR or your, your chlorine-infected tap water. The reason is, what kind of door is one hoping to keep open by being agnostic rather than having what I call defeasible non-belief? The only way a kind of precautionary thinking would work for main, maintaining or keeping some kind of belief in God would be if there were certain things you had to do to get on to the next life, to, to win God's judgment. The problem with that, of course, is that the only types of religion and forms of religion that state that are the very fundamentalist dogmatic ones. And you, you can't just keep the door ajar for them 
Uh, that's not good enough. You have to actually do things. If the God of the fundamentalist Christians exists, then unless you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, you're not saved. And you're not making things any better for yourself by, by simply saying, well, you know, may, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true is going to help you no more than I don't think that is true. I think there are real dangers of emphasising the virtues of uncertainty too much. There are perils in the lust for uncertainty as there are in the lust for certainty. The first one is that I think that there is a danger of conceding far too much to dogmatists who are primarily in opposition to good, sound evidence and so forth. I think there's a very clear example of this when it comes to creationism. In the debate between creationism and science, if we are too keen to promote the idea that the model of the intelligent, mature person is one who suspends judgment whenever there is doubt, that what is not certain should just be embraced as uncertain, what we risk doing here is conceding far too much in that debate because actually that's the main step the creationists want to make. They get their foot in the door, they get taken credibly precisely by the concession that this is up in the air. This is something over which reasonable people can disagree. Now, I think that's wrong, and there's an irony here, which is that someone who is very much in favour of a, a positive embrace of uncertainty is opposed to dogmatism. But in a strange way, by allowing oneself to agree that things are more uncertain than they really are in the realm of science, you're actually making it easier for certain dogmatists in this position to have their say when they really shouldn't be getting any credence at all. And, and I think there is a real danger in talking up the virtues of embracing uncertainty. That plays into the hands of people who want to say, you know, well, the science isn't certain. I think we have to go around and say, yes, the science isn't certain, and your point is what? And the point is it's not certain, but it's much, much more strongly supported than this creationist alternative. You know, as much certainty as a subject matter allows, and in this case, that's quite a lot. I think the general problem of trying to praise uncertainty too much is that it reinforces this, what I've said, false equation between convinced, defeasible belief and dogmatism. Talking praise of uncertainty almost inevitably seems to reduce the options in front of us to being a dogmatist or embracing uncertainty. But I think the third thing is no one should make agnosticism something which is seen as being just laudable in itself, regardless of context. There are issues in which it is totally appropriate, perhaps, to be agnostic. And of course, I've said my, my view on the God debate is that that's not the right position, but you can argue for agnosticism about the existence of God, and there are reasonable arguments there, perhaps. But agnosticism is not automatically a good or wise position to hold. We could be here all day listing the things on which the agnostic position would not be the good, sensible, rational, friendly, open one, but either a batty or a dangerous one. I hope you're not agnostic about the immorality of slavery. I hope it's the case that you think that there are overwhelming reasons for rejecting slavery, even though, as you're right, some of the particular arguments may have problems with them. Gay rights, the existence of Thor, the nutritional benefits of fresh fruit and vegetables. These are things which most people 
would not think it is appropriate to be agnostic about. And they would not think that someone was inherently more intellectually virtuous because instead of having a convinced opinion on these issues based on reasons and arguments, they chose to embrace uncertainty. I can really sum up with what I think should be really, really obvious points. The first is just that raising doubts is easy. Okay? I mean, this is just the beginning. Uh, undergraduates, first-year undergraduates in philosophy, the first thing they learn is that you can ask a virtually anything, you know, ah, but is it? Or, oh, how do you know? And this is very powerful. It's very good they learn that lesson. But if they're still only doing that at the end of three years, their degree has been a waste of time. It's the very first step, and the first step only to come to a mature recognition that nothing is certain. Everything depends on what follows from that. And if there's a simple principle, which I think sums it up, it is true that nothing is certain, but not everything is equally uncertain. And that is something I am entirely certain about. Thank you. Thanks to the Sea of Faith Network, and in particular to Chris Avis, who provided the recording from which this podcast was edited. If you enjoyed it, do follow what else I'm up to at microphilosophy.net, julianbagini.com, or via the Microphilosophy Twitter feed. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>